Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Tonight, we're talking with two people who are changing the shape of Sacramento's skyline. Christopher Barkley is design director for Dreyfus and Blackford Architecture, the 70-year-old firm that has created many famous modernist buildings in the area, including Smud Headquarters and the Calpers Headquarters in Sacramento and the Nut Tree in Vacaville. Barkley is celebrating his three-decade mark there, having started at Dreyfus and Blackford a year before our other panelist was born. At just age 29, Nikki Mohana has quickly gained the reputation as one of Sacramento's most innovative home builders. Her just-opened building, 19J, in Midtown is the first in Sacramento to feature modern micro-units, which average 300 square feet and rent for less than $1,000. Now, Mohana is breaking ground on 10K, a mixed-use building in downtown that combines a hotel with studios and co-living spaces. Join us for a great conversation with a young whippersnapper and a seasoned veteran as they talk about their groundbreaking projects in Sacramento and find out how their views compare and contrast on architecture, design, urban planning, and the future of buildings for live, work, and play in California. Hi everyone, welcome to California Groundbreakers. I'm Vanessa Richardson, the Executive Director, and we hold events uh, on what's new, exciting, and innovative around California, and who are the groundbreakers making that change. Tonight we're holding one of our Groundbreakers Q&A interviews in which we talk with some of California's mightiest movers and shakers, People who are bringing changes, making waves, and putting California's capital city on the map in bold font. And this evening's conversation is with two literal groundbreakers. Uh, one panelist is one of the most talked about real estate developers in Sacramento. She's only 29. And she was born a year after the other panelist took a job at Dreyfus and Blackford Architecture, which I think is celebrating its 65-year anniversary next year. Uh, and he is the design director there. I mentioned numbers here because I just found there's a lot of notable dates and numbers that apply to these two panelists. So Nikki Mohanich has opened up 19J. Uh, I think it's open, right? People are moving in. It's the first of its kind micro-unit apartment building on 19th and J in Sacramento, so we're going to talk about that. And Chris Barkley just wrapped up the renovation of SMED, SMUD headquarters, which, FYI, my dad worked out for 25 years. Uh, and that's a very notable building in the modernist style. Um, and I guess it was built or designed 50 years ago by Albert Dreyfus and Leonard Blackford, uh, and it's on the National Register of Historic Places. So I think to me that sets the tone of old, new, renovated, renovations, new, and how that all comes into play, different generations, different styles. Um, and so one reason I wanted to do this event, I. I think like many people, I like architecture. I love to go on walking tours. I, look to, I like to look at buildings and look at the facades and, and I admire them. And two things I, I noticed just from my individual uh, point of view is there's a lot of architecture that I see and read about, super modern, futuristic. And then there's another type that seems to refer to or is inspired by architecture from the past. And it feels like California has both of these types of styles. Obviously, we have the Spanish mission style, uh, 
Victorian style, but we also have modern futuristic buildings like obviously SMUD headquarters was back in the day to Apple's new spaceship style headquarters in the Bay Area. One thing I also thought when I was reading on architecture and, and also made me inspired to do this uh, Q&A is we're talking a lot about interiors now of the buildings um, and how we use them. Uh, so new terms like micro units, open workspace, community gathering places seem to me to be commonly used these days that maybe were not used 10 or 20 years ago. So maybe what is very constant in architecture and building is that buildings throughout the years, centuries, have always been built by different generations and for different generations who use them in different ways than their parents or grandparents and past ancestors. So I thought it would be interesting to bring together two groundbreakers from two different generations and see how they view architecture, building design and construction, urban planning here in Sacramento and around California, how they compare and contrast their opinions and views of all that, and ultimately how those collective views are shaping Sacramento's skyline and the way that the places that they're building will change the way that we live, the way we work, and the way we play. So before I start asking the panelists their questions, I'd like to give some special thanks to people who helped me put this event together. Uh, first off and foremost, I always like to thank our hosts, uh, the lovely space that we hold many of our events in, uh, Antiquity Midtown this evening. So heartfelt thanks as always to our uh, hosts, Sharon Wilson and Marcy Hose, who own Antiquity Midtown. I also want to thank the American Institute of Architects, the Central Valley chapter, because we are holding this event during, it is, during its Experience Architecture Week. So thanks very much to the AIA chapter for promoting this event and to members who came tonight. Also to our engineers, um, Caleb Clark and Nate Graham from Kickstart Audio, who are going to make us all sound good for the podcast. To our volunteers extraordinaire, Rodrigo Ramirez, who is bartending, and to Donnell Brown and Nicole Grant Creek for checking people in. Thank you very much for helping out as always. To our caterer, Jennifer Fregata, who uh, served up the great food and the great cantaloupe juice, which is excellent. Of course, to our panelists, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be here tonight. And last but not least, to you, the audience, for doing the same. So I'm going to start with questions, and then we will do audience questions at the mic. And I, I'm going to let the panelists introduce themselves. I'm going to ask, obviously, besides your name and your current role and organization that you work at or lead, a personal note about you, since we're talking about architecture and buildings. I wanted to ask, what is a building anywhere in the world that inspires you and or makes you happy to be alive? So I'm going to start with the woman on my left. I'm going to put her on the spot. Hello, everyone. My name is Nikki Mohanna. And to answer that question, I would go a little bit out of the box and say that the building that inspires me the most is actually one here that's local. Um, it's a nondescript warehouse uh, over in the River District that has transformed many lives. Uh, it's part of the continuum of care campus across the street from Loaves and Fishes. And I've spent a lot of time there as a child. I've seen what that building has accomplished and really the amount of people that have come through and changed their lives for the better. 
Uh, and I'm uh, Chris Barkley. I usually go by Chris, even though Christopher's my stage name or something like that. But um, president and design director of Drivus and Blackford Architecture. If you don't know us, we've it's actually will be almost 70 years. So it's 69 this I'm year. Sorry, I'm bad at no that. worries. That's after you know 50 or so, you don't count anymore. So like birthdays. Um, um, but if you know, like I said, I'm, I'm just. Uh, celebrated my 30th uh, year here in Sacramento and working at Jefferson Blackford. But um, it's tough to pick a single building uh, because there are so many great ones out there. But um, one of my favorites, just because of the sort of experience to it, and it's sort of a mecca for architects, is the um, um, is a uh, Louis Kahn building, the Salk Institute. Um, and it's just one of the things, it's, it's a beautiful setting. The building is very um, almost brutal in its form, but uh, but the experience you have there um, is just really amazing, and I think that's probably colored a lot by my by my education. Is that down in San Diego, Southern California? Yes, yeah, okay. uh, La Jolla specifically. Okay, because I was reading up on brutalism, and I think they use that as yeah, an example. Yeah, we just we did just talk about that. Yeah. I will talk about that. And I should mention, I think these two have are meeting here for the first time this evening. So they have no idea what the other one's going to say. It's going to be very, very interesting. So thank you both for being here. And Chris, I'm going to start with you. Um, uh, obviously, we're going to start from the beginning. I think you grew up in Idaho. Is that correct? Or thereabouts? Uh, Central Washington State, mostly. Central Washington but, State. Uh, yeah, I went to school in Idaho. So I thought that was interesting. I mean, obviously, Idaho, Central Washington up there has a lot more trees and natural structures than it does buildings and high-rises. So I wanted to know what inspired you uh, to pursue architecture. Was it a straight path or kind of a zigzag that led you to where you are right now? Yeah, it was definitely a zigzag path. It was almost accidental, actually. I was uh, going to school, not sure what I was going to do, and I was actually in pre-law political science because I had sort of been politically involved, um, even like from age 15 on. And so, but then I just got you know thinking about, well, it's going to be so many years of, of, of books and, and all of that, and I'd always enjo enjoyed drawing and creative things. So I thought, well, architecture is a great mix of creativity and, and science, really. So I kind of accidentally fell into it, but I've um, enjoyed it uh, immensely ever since. And what brought you to Sacramento? Um, so when I graduated from college, I ended up in um, uh, Central California. Um, uh, used to live in uh, Shell Beach by Pismo Beach and had a small firm in Santa Maria, but my wife's family, and she's here with us tonight, um, she was, actually my wife was born here in Sacramento. Um, her dad was in the Air Force, so they moved away, but um, she always had family here, and we used to come up and visit, and I found Drivers and Blackford, and they had um, just recently completed the um, Herman Miller facility out in Rockland that was designed by Frank Gehry, and they had been the executive architect on that, so it was an immensely interesting project, and I've, I've got to be with this firm and doing this work that they're doing. And then, Nikki, I think you grew up here. You're a Sacramento native. And yes. Yes, okay. And you grew up in a family that worked in real estate development. Your father, is, is his name is Mo Mahana, so he's had some developments. And I was wondering how growing up in a real estate development family, how that influenced your view or how you actually pictured uh, buildings, architecture, the design of them, the construction of them. Yeah, well, and my mom is an architect as well, so I came from a family that primarily constantly discussed development and architecture, and as a child, I just remember most of my weekends were spent 
you know, in properties, seeing, you know, renovations and adaptive reuse. And I played with building materials since I was a kid. So there was just a lot of imagination. I think that when you're young and you're surrounded by that, you end up really thinking about how buildings can transform and you see it over the years. And so as a kid, I remember my dad would take me to these really crazy buildings and he would, you know, be buying things that nobody wanted to buy. Um, transform them and as a kid I remember every weekend going into those buildings and telling my dad he was crazy but then seeing you know what resulted from it um, just seeing you know over decades how things can transform was really inspiring and it made it made me want to be a part of it. So I was going to ask some people to say uh, okay I've I've had enough of it during my childhood I want to do something totally different and others they know from an early age this is for me were you more the latter you just knew this is something you wanted to go into? I think so. I think that, you know, throughout the years, I always worked with my parents. And as a kid, I think I started working really, really young. So they always put me to work. And um, it was just something that I always was drawn to. All right. And Chris, for you, working for a 70-year-old firm, and now I have that on my notes, 70-year, rich history and so many projects, I was wondering how you approach the design of a brand new building, uh, compared to renovating one here that the city is familiar with, like obviously the SMUD headquarters or, or CalPERS renovation, do you have a different approach for new versus an older established building? Well, some of it overlaps, but certainly when you're um, designing a new building from the ground up, um, I'm a firm believer in kind of modernist principles and of inside out. So understanding the constraints, what your client really needs, and and developing that from diagrams where you're moving from inside out to the building. So in the, you know, by the time you've got the plan fully gelled and figuring out how it fits on the site and all of that, it starts to speak to what the building will look like. Um, um, it, it's more of an iteration than in usually not necessarily an aha moment, but it just sort of builds and develops into a certain thing. If you're working with an existing building, obviously there's something that's been set in motion already. And even though the way the building functions and works is really important, um, it's more about adapting that need to that building and seeing what you really need to change with it to make it functional for the client and, a, and a, you know, a, a better building than when you started. And I, to follow up on that, there was um, an article that was really interesting to me. It was in Sacktown Magazine earlier this year about the SMUD uh, headquarters, and you were quoted in there. It sounded like obviously there are some challenges because it was built 50 years ago today, or, right? Or designed 50 years ago. Uh, it was a different kind of workplace, right? A different type of work style, uh, maybe different requirements. Um, I guess how did that compare in terms of all the projects you've done in terms of notable things you had to do differently or, or keep in mind or or particularly because it's the SMUD headquarters that is such a notable building you had to respect and honor its tradition. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it's a huge project for me because it, um, the primary designer of that was Lynn Blackford and Leonard Blackford. Um, and he's my predecessor at the firm. And we actually share the same uh, birthday, not the year, of course, but uh, all of that. But uh, uh, he passed away uh, not too long ago, but a uh, fabulous designer. And for me to work on what may have been one of the seminal buildings of his career, I think, um, uh, was really important to me, and I think also to, to the community because it is a, a modernist building that's on the registry. It's really important, 
Um, so I, I was just really trying not to screw it up as more than anything. Um, but we also really wanted to make it a, a modern workplace for, for SMUD. Um, I'll just really, a really quick story. You know, the used to be open. It was one of the first open office kind of environments probably in Sacramento. And, and everybody had a, like a, a three foot by five foot desk and it had a, a Bakelite telephone on it, a typewriter and an ashtray. And so this is, uh, we've come a long way since then. The ashtrays are definitely gone. Typewriters are definitely gone. Um, but, you know, we, have a, we need to have a modern work, workplace for people that work in the building. And so that was one of the things that we did was try to get more access to natural light and views, uh, open up spaces that were previously much tighter and more constrained, and just make it a much better workplace for everyone. And then, Nikki, I wanted to ask you, too, you know, just talking about workspace in a different kind of uh, uh, interior structure. Uh, I feel like reading about you, you traveling and moving to a place, London, uh, for school, that seemed to play a significant role in how you view, or now maybe view, uh, a, a building up for living and urban design. So I wanted... I wanted to see how that city living there influenced you and then coming back, how that influenced the buildings that you just opened and the one that you are about to open, if you can tell us about those buildings. Yeah, I think that my experience in London definitely shaped a lot of the things that I'm looking at doing here in Sacramento just because we're dealing with a housing shortage here in California and there's a lot to learn from other cities. And I think living in London... I really saw how you could live within, you know, within buildings that really cultivate what I call elegant density. So bringing that density and solving the problems of our time in California, which I think is one of the most critical things for us to address. It's so critical to look at other cities and see what they've done because, you know, cities like London have been facing this challenge for centuries. And, you know, looking at how they've developed their city into a place where it's inclusive in the sense that you have people from all different backgrounds living within, you know, a few blocks of each other. And that's truly the beauty of London to me and seeing how, you know, the norm over there is that you're really utilizing the spaces outside of where you live and where you live is just where you sleep. But the reality is that the the restaurants, the parks, the cafes, those become your living rooms. And it's really a, a redefining of housing and how we look at how we live. So if we can take those models and principles and bring it to California, I think that we'll be much better off in how we not only solve the housing crisis, but also live a better life. So, in, in, so give us details about 19J, because that just opened. What's notable about that? And then the next project that you're working on is 10K, right? 10th and K. So what what does 19J look like? What's notable about that? And then what do you want 10K to be? So they're both very similar in many ways in that, you know, it's it's all about bringing vertical density into our urban grid. So 19J was unique in that, you know, it was bringing vertical density in a very tight footprint. So it's 11 stories, 175 units. And, you know, it's very compact. Um, and what's unique about it is that it's bringing micro units to Sacramento. Um, although I'd say that it's not the first of its kind and that there's a lot of old product in Sacramento, historic product, where, you know, back when people were living in the urban grid, 
our workforce lived in those units. Um, so I personally lived in one of those historic units that was around 350 square feet here in Sacramento. Um, it was about 100 years old. So I, I learned a lot from that history, but I think that it's important to bring that history back to what we build today because we do see this new revival of our urban core. And so 19J is really bringing that back um, in a much larger way in that, you know, 80% of the building is all studios and smaller units. So, you know, they're as small as 275 square feet. Um, and, you know, I think my experiences in London really shaped that building and learning from that, seeing the people starting to move in has really been gratifying to see, you know, people from all different backgrounds, uh, a lot of young people for sure, but, you know, they're just really happy to have a place of their own and you know they want to be a part of a community and it's really seen when you have these small units that sense of community flourishes and and what about 10j what can you tell us about that and where it's what the plans are for that building so 10k is Sorry. A, i know it's all good um it's a 15 story it's uh basically 186 residential units very similar to 19j in that you know approximately 70 percent of the units are smaller studios, also geared towards the workforce population. Um, and then it's also mixed use in that there's a hotel component as well. Um, because, you know, in downtown there's so much need for more hotel rooms and the economic vitality of our city is contingent upon, you know, how we build these structures that are mixed use and that really bring every component into one structure. So it is pretty, it's, I, I would say it's the epitome of mixed use. And I think I read somewhere, maybe it was in the Sacramento Bee, that that 10K will have a, a common a floor or maybe a couple floors of common living space, like living room, kitchen, on these floors. Or, or how does that, is that the case? There'll be common spaces within? Yes, yeah, so I am working on a few co-living concepts. That's what we're calling it. Um, it's actually, it's been, you know, a long time in the making with um, a few different partners. partners. Um, the University of California is one. Um, and we're actually working with them at 19J, but um, you know, looking forward to 10K, there's a lot of opportunities to bring even more attainable housing through just the way that we build, and co-living is one of those methods. Um, when we're looking at you know, housing for service, service industry workers or capital staffers or people that are just starting out their careers, um, it's really another form of housing that I think Sacramento is lacking and that we need. And where does it stand right now? Is it uh, you have you have all the permits or at least ready to break ground? And what do you project the people moving in uh, if you can? <laughs> it's always hard to make projections. Just finished 19J, so we're happy that we finally have people moving in there. But um, we just got our entitlements for 10K. We're moving forward to get it permitted and hopefully breaking ground next year. Great. So both of you had mentioned um, how traveling the world has influenced your view of buildings and design. So you had mentioned London. I was also wondering what, you know, what other cities inspire you um, for your personal, personally and professionally? And um, which cities, if they're the same ones or maybe different ones, are examples for Sacramento to consider for building? Who would like to start? Chris. Yeah, that's a little bit of a tough one. Um, Probably not as, as travel as extensively, but um, one one thing that I um, have always really appreciated are the uh, hill towns of Europe, so particularly in Italy. Um, you get this really wonderful kind of accidental 
pathways moving through them and the shapes of the spaces that are between the buildings um, create a very interesting space. And I love the way that that's done. And you can sort of see that happening around the arena. I think that's a project where they really uh, looked at those kinds of spaces. Um, so it breaks the grid up a little bit. Uh, and if you do that selectively, it can make for a really interesting places and that's something that I always try to even when I'm laying out a building and if I'm creating if there are wings of a building or forms of the building that then can be used to create outdoor spaces that can connect with the inside but not just having them a bunch of parallel uh, planes or or facades that but make it makes it more interesting if you can kind of uh, create some synergy there with the way that those are laid out so like uh, like Siena and Pisa, well no Pisa is not a hill town, but Siena, I, yeah, okay. uh, San Gimignano is an excellent okay. uh, example of that. That's, love that place. Yeah, Florence nice. even even you know Florence is one of my favorite cities, and that definitely has that kind of vibe to it. Nikki, what about you? Well, I really do love almost every city I've been to, so that's a really hard question. But I can definitely say that you know traveling has brought a lot of perspective to how we define housing. Specifically, I mean, when, we, when it comes to housing, I think just seeing you know, more established countries that have had the, been through every stage of development, they're at the late stages of development, and I think it's really important for what I'd say a, a newer um, you know, nation like ours to learn from places like Europe where they've gone through you know, every design and plan and they've really created these communities over centuries so that to me has a lot of value to learn from so I would agree with you I've you know I've been to Italy I love the way that they've created a sense of community through their design and the role that architecture plays in the way that people live is so important and it's all through the design and how you think about how you're creating these buildings and how they interact with each other and how they create spaces for people to live. Um, but also, I mean, just, you know, Europe, Europe is a great example of how they bring elegant density to housing, but um, Tokyo is another city that I've really been inspired by, just the way that they have really maximized their resources and the lack of available land. Um, there's a lot to learn from. I think that's way far from what Sacramento will ever be, but there are concepts there that I think are crucial to realize and understand when it comes to things like housing for the homeless. The, you know, the very challenging issues of our time, we have to look at the most innovative of ideas, and you see those things in places like Tokyo where it's not for the homeless, it's actually for the, the middle class in Tokyo. But if you take those ideas and you bring them to California, those are the types of solutions that I think will work. Um, and you asked the question about you know, what cities could Sacramento learn from. I think you know, a lot of the times we compare ourselves to cities like Austin and Portland just because of their similarities to us which I think is great, but I think that we do have to think a little bit out of the box and we have that opportunity given that we're the capital of California. There's a lot that we can showcase here in our city. So I think we have to step out of the bounds a little bit and think a little more creatively by looking at places that may not be similar to Sacramento. So, yeah, I, I just want to tag on to that a little bit. And you talked about a little bit earlier about if you're in a micro unit that's small, it's a place for sleeping, but how it connects to the outdoor spaces. And I think 
to me, that is the key for most of the great cities in the world, right, is that they have great outdoor spaces and people can connect to them and, and you don't have to live large to live happily in those areas. So that's, that's, that's really great. And I have a question for both of you, but I'll, I'll start with Chris because I was reading, I think maybe with the AIA, um, Central Valley chapter, you're, you play a very big role in that organization. And I think in your bio, I read that you run an understanding architecture program for government officials and special interest groups. And I was wondering, you know, talking about Sacramento and building and government officials, you have to deal with them, or not deal, but interact with them on a regular basis, right? Permits, and so uh, maybe understanding architecture is something you want them to, to know about better so that you can collaborate. So I'll start with you. You know, what do you tell them, government officials or whatever groups that you talk to about understanding architecture, what do you want them and maybe people in general to know about architecture that they don't know yet? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the purpose behind the program is a lot of times when we're working in an urban environment, um, there are a lot of built buildings around and some of them go back uh, perhaps hundreds of years depending on where you're at. Um, there's a tendency for people to look at context as what is that building across the street? If it's brick, then maybe you should design your building to be brick so that it matches in with that or if it's a particular style um, that it, it probably ne it needs to be um, related to that style. But all kind of great architectural movements came out of some form of technology, if you think about it. So brick was a technology. Um, when we started building, you know, using steel, then it started to affect the shape and form that our buildings took. So the idea of the program is to not just look at what's built around it, but to look at what's happening in the world today. So um, if you look at context, uh, context could be technology, it could be sustainability or some combination of those things. And I think that when we do, when you know, elected officials um, vote on and, and, and engage these design guidelines, um, they're not necessarily thinking about that. And uh, we can create our own new architectural styles moving forward that are much more responsive to the human need, I think, if you think about context in a different way. And, and Nikki, same question for you, because I feel like you probably do have to, you know, explain your ideas, your vision, probably to elected officials as well. Um, does the message come across easily or, you know, what do you want them to understand? And is it easy to get that message across? I don't want to, I don't want to jeopardize any future plans you have for development, but, you know, how, what's... How do you uh, make people understand architecture and development? No, and I think I'm really comfortable talking about this because, you know, our especially in Sacramento, our local officials have actually been very collaborative, working with us to come up with ways to bring the housing that we need. We all have the same goals. We want the same thing. And so um, I think they've actually really appreciated that foresight into what could be and, you know, I know I've put together a lot of packages of photos and ideas and examples just to, you know, push the boundaries a little bit on the design guidelines that we're bound to here in Sacramento because, you know, our design guidelines were written a long time ago and they're very, you know, specific to Sacramento. So, um, you know, when I would travel and I would bring photos of, you know, encroachments and things that, 
not only allow us to build better and more cost effectively and create value, but also create a benefit for the life of our city. And so, you know, those are the things that you can learn from other places and bring. And I, you know, our local officials are very receptive to these ideas. I think it just takes time. And, you know, we need a little bit more understanding of what other cities are doing and bring those thoughts and ideas here. But as every projects move forward, they see some of those small things in action. And, you know, you take step by step and you bring these things to fruition. And ultimately, you know, I, I have seen a lot of proactive results from just provi presenting some of these ideas, so. And in terms of California, we've had a lot of events, um, housing-focused ones, but it seems like even when the topic is not specifically in housing, the, the topic of affordable housing comes up. It's, it's, it's such a big issue across the board. And I think in terms of architecture, I was talking with someone, I can't remember when, about as an architect, it's hard to get your vision built in California because maybe of costs, uh, labor is expensive, materials. Uh, and so Asia, I guess, is an area where so many, you know, innovative buildings are built because they, they, they want to, you know, make their skyline. So Singapore, right, Shanghai. Um, but I was wondering in terms of, in California specifically, what's, what is good about being an architect and developer here? And I know there's, as we could go down a rabbit hole in terms of what's bad, but what would you like to change or what, what really needs to be changed to do what you both do better um, that would benefit people here in California? Does that mean, <laughs> it's a two-parter, but yeah, in terms of like, how does California stand in terms of architecture right now and what's good about that um, and what needs to be improved? Nikki. I think that we really need to learn how to utilize density to our benefit. Um, I think because California for so long has had a lot of land to work with, we've had suburban sprawl, it creates affordability because it's a more affordable form of construction, absolutely. You know, building track homes in the suburbs is very affordable. But I think that, you know, from a standpoint of a lifestyle and happiness, which we see in other countries, being a part of a community is a big part of that. And density is one of the means in which we can create that sense of community. So um, what I'd really like to see California, you know, start to shift towards is redefining the way that we, the way that we create these communities and how we design our structures to enable that, you know, density that really works to create the lifestyles that we want to see. So, um, you know, that goes all the way into the zoning laws that are in existence, um, how we can, you know, feel comfortable about bringing greater density to the communities that have already existed. Um, we have a lot of areas that are zoned for single family homes that I feel, you know, are within walking and biking distance of a lot of jobs. And those are places, especially when you look at in the Bay Area, it's really unfortunate when you have a city that is predominantly a lot of single family homes with a workforce that creates all of these great services for these homeowners to take advantage of, they don't have the ability, ability to live in those same communities and neighborhoods. And so density is the solution to that. And I think there has to be a lot of sacrifices made from all perspectives and all ends, but 
you know, as you see new generations coming, I think that they, they want that. And we have to be receptive to what our future generations are asking for. Chris, what about you? I think you're absolutely right on with all of that. Um, I sit on the AIA State um, uh, Urban Design Committee, and we we, we meet uh, several times a year, usually by phone, but um, about 80% of our conversations are centered around density in residential development and um, working with the state and with local uh, um, uh, uh, municipalities and, and other entities about crafting zoning and, 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 and building codes and things like that to allow uh, for some creativity in the way that we that we house people and it's it's probably our most important topic that we have in those discussions and um, sometimes the building codes also can get in the way of doing that and we did a um, I see Brian Sainert's here in the uh, audience tonight, but uh, Soilborn Farms has um, interns that come out and work uh, for them uh, or, and learn farming practices. Um, and they basically live in tents um, because um, they don't really have the kind of money to build full units for them and do all of that. And we were going to do a, a little competition where we could design some, some, um, some um, tiny houses, basically. For them to do that, but the building codes got in the way, and the and and uh, the city of Rancho Cordova um, just said we can't find a way to let you build these these projects, and and I thought that was really a shame because it would have been a great opportunity. Um, I'm going to ask if anyone in the audience has a question. If you start lining up at the mic, I know everyone always has good questions, or you'll probably. Uh, ask some that I have farther down my list, but if you'd like to line up, uh, please do so. And while you do, um, I guess I was going to ask about the future of architecture for architects. My aunt was an architect. She was back in the 60s and uh, Latina and in New York. It was very, very tough. She became a professor. But I feel like when I talk to architects, um, even today, you know, they're really passionate about it, but it's a, it's, it, it seems like there's a lot of challenges. And I guess, with, again, with California and... Um, you know, maybe zoning laws or NIMBYs or whatever. Some some architects might be more inspired when they see what's going on in other parts of the country or, or Asia. You know, maybe that's where they should go. Go, you know, across the ocean, young man. But in terms of, you know, what you tell young people who want to go into architecture and real estate development, you know, building a building that, that um, they're proud of, what are the prospects and what would you advise them? I'm, I'll, I'll start with you, Chris, and then Nikki, you are next. Uh, well, the one thing that I really enjoyed about my architecture education is it's much of anything specifically that I was learned, but it's about learning how to think and to think in a certain way that helps um, with creative solutions to problems. And um, I'm seeing architects come out of school and go and take all different kinds of paths. A lot of um, a lot of architects are working for builders. Um, sometimes they cross over into other parts of the design world that really aren't related to to to, build, to buildings at all necessarily. Um, but they're still about environments, so they still have to know the same kinds of things, and they can still learn the same kinds of things. And um, it just becomes a very interesting notion. You can do pretty much whatever you want with an architecture degree um, just because it, of the background that it gives you. Is this a good place to be an architect? I think so, yeah. And um, 
you know, the other thing about it too is um, younger generations are much more about collaboration and working together and teamwork and, and, and solving problems together. And uh, I think there's a great background in architecture and that as well. And we're seeing people are really drawn to that part of it. And then Nikki, Ashley, when you answer this, I think it's going to be interesting to get your perspective because to me it seems notable. You're 29 and a woman in, an, in, an, in a field that is very male, right? And so I guess your advice for people of all ages, but all genders, to get into real estate development, you know, what do you advise and how do you, you know, how do you get things done? I actually think this is the most exciting time to be in this field uh, in California, specifically because there's a call for help. And there's a call from politicians and our community asking for innovative ideas. And that is the solution. And I think that it's time for a fresh perspective. So if anything, being young and not quite knowing everything about the industry is not the worst thing. In fact, I think that it brings a different perspective and you ask questions that maybe haven't been asked before or that people don't ask because they don't think it can be done. Um, and you know, I've actually had a, a really interesting time in the past two years. I feel like I've aged 20 years, honestly, with all the experiences and the obstacles and the challenges that I've gone through. But at the same time, like I can really genuinely see how being young is a benefit because you know you're in a room with seasoned people that have done this for decades and that there's a lot of value there in those rooms but i also think there's a lot of value in coming to the table with a fresh perspective on how you can do something differently even if it's a little you know risky to ask these questions or do something a little different um, it's the time the time is now here in california for us to do that all right, let's take our first question at the mic. Uh, good evening, and, and thank you very much. I have a two-part question, which we'd like to hear from both speakers from. And it's regarding climate change and how you are taking climate change into account in your work in terms of siting of buildings, in terms of design, in terms of materials, uh, and in terms of construction, um, et cetera. And then part two is you've both expressed the importance of what's outside the house, parks, courtyards, et cetera, as part of the living experience. Uh, we're here in Sacramento, which is the city of trees, and so trees are a very important part of that landscape, and they're also an important part of solutions to climate change. So I wonder if you could address how you are, in your work, trying to provide space for trees in the urban forest. Chris, why don't you start? Okay, well, I'll start with maybe the first half of that question. Um, there's a really exciting movement uh, afoot right now, and that's the um, uh, use of mass timber for construction. Uh, it creates an extremely beautiful building. It encapsulates carbon, um, and it's just a wonderful uh, construction system. Uh, DPR Construction's new office location, just a few blocks from here, um, they had an existing building. Um, but then they add, where they added onto it, they used mass timber, they used cross-laminated timber. And uh, it makes for a beautiful interior. Um, at the same time, it's encapsulating carbon. The other part of that too is, one thing that we're seeing really a lot of is, um, and SMUD's a good example of that, of really making um, good use of the resources that we have already and not building completely, you know, tearing down buildings and building completely new, new structures. Uh, if we can make our existing buildings 
uh, function much better and be much better for our workforce and, and people living in them, then I think that that helps remove a lot of that um, th th those things that are happening when you start with ground up greenfield construction. I just had a quick question. Mass timber, can you give a quick definition of what that is, just to be clear how it differentiates from standard timber? Okay. So mass timber is basically any kind of uh, large uh, wood um, structural or wall elements that are built up of, of strands of lumber. So if you look at, uh, there's, you know, back in the day there was a lot of old growth timber being used, right, and that got used up. And so uh, we're farming uh, timber now or we're using smaller um, uh, pieces of timber. So if you put them together, glue them together, you know, glue laminated beam is sort of the original classic concept of that, uh, making larger members that can be columns, beams, um, but then you can also do shear walls and panels and floor decking and roof decks and everything out of what's called cross-laminated timber, and they're basically taking the smaller members and gluing them up in alternating directions, so you have this big slab of, of timber, basically, that, that makes for a really nice finish. All right, thank you. Nikki? So... You know, as someone who I, I sit on the Mayor's Climate Commission as a developer, so it's a very interesting intersection of worlds there. But I truly believe that, you know, environmental sustainability and the goals that we have towards, you know, ensuring that we're fighting climate change um, and housing affordability actually go hand in hand. I think a lot of the times we focus a lot on, and especially in California, in our, in our you know, policies, we focus a lot on you know, the construction of buildings. Um, and that's very important. Um, but I also think that what sometimes is lacking is talking about how we live within these buildings because, you know, over 50% of our GHG emissions come from transportation. And so if we're really going to solve the problem, it's not going to be just through, you know, building materials. It's going to be through how people live within these buildings and ensuring that people live close to their work so they don't have to commute, ensuring that we're building housing in the right areas and the right types of housing for our workforce. So those are all the elements that I think are so critical, and it's a longer-term vision, but um, you know, I know that a lot of focus has been placed on the mandates that are being created um, on you know, Title 24 and energy codes, which are all really important, but I think sometimes we have to think a little bit on the larger perspective of how are people living in these buildings and who's living in these buildings and are we building things in the right places so that people don't have to commute an hour to work. Thank you. Thank you for the great question. And the next one at the mic. Hi, George Raya. And it's an observation about a, a very good example of sons and daughters following in their parents' footsteps on the SMUD project, Mike Heller, I believe, was the construction, and uh, Paul, the sons of uh, Wayne, the artist, was the artist consultant on that. And I know Mike was just super excited about remodeling his father's building. And I guess we should mention that Wayne, uh, the artist that George is referring to is Wayne Thibault. Am I saying his last name correctly? Who is a very famous artist still living. I actually saw him play tennis at Sutter Lawn at age of 95. But he did the mural, right? Water City, River City. That is the exterior of um, the, runs the exterior of the Smutta headquarters, right? And he, that's his only large public installation 
right? Because he's known for the pop art, the cakes and the pies, but that's his only public uh, structure, Chris? Yeah, as far, as far as I know, and it's kind of interesting how that all came to be. I'll uh, just relate a short, uh, quick story on that. So uh, when Len Blackford was working on this, and they were originally looking at doing a white Carrara marble um, cladding around the base of the building. If you know the building, it's got a very white kind of plinth to it in the upper story um, as it cantilevers out from the edge. And, and um, uh, it was going to be relatively expensive. And then I think Len Blackford had this idea of, of this artist who was really unknown at the time. He was a young guy. And... And uh, thought, well, why don't we do something with art on this on this piece? And and um, and Wayne actually came up with some ideas. And 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 Lynn actually said his first idea was horrible. So <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. You know, I I, w- I would never tell Wayne these days that his idea was horrible, um, obviously. But um, so they did a couple of iterations and ended up with the final design. And uh, it's it's just amazing. And that's probably priceless now. And it's. But it was done at a fraction of the cost of the original concept with marble cladding. So that's pretty interesting. And I think, was there something about uh, Mike Heller? Again, I'm, re- I'm referring to the Sacktown Magazine article about the, the Smud headquarters renovation. Mike Heller wanted to work with the sons of Wayne Tebowd to build or renovate a building in honor of uh, the fathers. Is that That's the, the tribute building, and it's not constructed yet, but um, yeah, there were plans to do that. It, are there still plans? Uh, I'm, I'm sure not what's sure. going on with it currently. Okay, yeah. all right. Next question, with the mic. Hey, hey Vanessa. Um, Hi, Marco. Um, you guys touched on it a little bit um, as far as innovation going all the way back to brick, um, but here we are today, 2019, do you guys see any innovation in construction materials? I know you said you talked a little bit about it, Nikki, as far as the, um, you know, the bigger problem is, is really how we live, and I thought that was a great point, but are we seeing hempcrete? Is hempcrete coming in? Are we seeing the innovation and the technology innovation as far as 3D printing? How far away are we from that? Well, it's the future is now. I mean, they are starting to do uh, three, uh, some significant 3D printing on on buildings, and there are new materials coming along all all the time, particularly in the area of cladding. You know, building cladding. I think there are a lot of really exciting stuff. Um, uh, it's 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 all just coming through now. It's it'll be continuous going forward. It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Nikki, yeah, I do think that that's actually a very important piece of how we solve our housing shortage because. It's clear that the traditional methods of construction are not going to get out of, us out of this problem anytime soon. Um, however, in construction, unfortunately, I think this is why we need younger people in this field, um, just because we need to think out of the box on these issues. We can't keep having hammers on job sites. I mean, I, I find it ridiculous, personally, that we've been doing the same thing for so long, and it's shocking. But it's because every time we try to innovate in construction materials or methodologies, we hit another recession, and everything that we were about to do just goes back to the traditional form again when we get out of the cycle. So I, this cycle has actually been very interesting in that it's been quite long, and so you're seeing things like 3D printing coming you know, together, and you're seeing um, more pre- prefabrication, modular, um, those are the types of things we need. It's certainly not new. These are things that have been you know, in the works for decades, but yet today, because of the situation we're facing with our construction costs rising, we've had to innovate. 
um, 19J was actually, you know, built out of like-age steel construction. It was the, it's the tallest like-age steel building in all of California. So those are the types of things we need more of. However, I still think there's a long way to go. I still think that, you know, that those are antiquated methodologies and we need a lot more off-site fabrication instead of building things on site if we want to get out of this housing crisis. So are you seeing a lot of that then, of the uh, prefabrication um, in your units? Yeah, so I think that we're seeing that there are challenges when you know your team is doing it for the first time, but I see the value of it. I just think that we need a lot more mass production of these things, and the more we do it, the better we'll become. So I think we'll become a lot more efficient as we continue to build. Um, but yeah, I, I can definitely see the value of bringing greater prefabrication just because 19J, you know, th we had all of our walls prefabricated offsite and they were brought in, assembled within four days. So every floor, the walls were assembled in four days. Um, those are things we need because time is money and if we want to reduce our costs, we have to get into better forms of construction. I still think we have a long way to go and this is where, you know, the when we live in a place like California and technology, the advancements that we have in this state are amazing in every other field. We need that energy coming into the construction field if we're going to succeed as a state. Yeah, I just uh, kind of wanted to add a little bit to that. The, the, it ties back to the SMUD headquarters, and you know the building is designed sort of like a machine uh, with a five-foot overarching grid. But what that allowed us to do moving forward with is, is that there are a few private offices in there and conference rooms and, and spaces in the building. Everything is on the five-foot grid, and everything is built out of pre-constructed panels. Um, that were that were constructed off-site where they can control things in the factory, less waste, less pollution, all that sort of thing, and then installed in the building, and they could actually be moved from one spot to another and still fit within the layout and planning of the building. So it's a really fantastic thing when you start to, when you get really efficient about it. And before we go to the next question at the mic, I, I wanted to. Uh, add on to that question about um, efficiency, energy efficiency. You know, I feel like I read a lot of buildings now are LEED certified. And I'm wondering if that's the norm to come up with more energy efficient buildings, you know, solar panels on the rooftop, uh, less water usage, recycled water. Are, the, are, are Is this a common thing now to look at how a building can be more energy and water efficient overall? And if so, what are the, the trends that are happening now or, or what should be happening in terms of efficiency? Chris. Well, um, you know, Lee did a great thing for the industry in sort of setting something in motion. It's not the only way to get there, and, and you know, obviously there's, there are different ways to be sustainable. It creates a scorecard and a path to measuring sustainability, I suppose. Um, but there are other programs as well, like the WellBuild Institute and others that um, address, you know, really broad-ranging um, subjects related to that. But um, it, it is a great measure. Um, we have a lead platinum building that's you know right here in Folsom that we worked on, and uh, it's amazing what you can accomplish when you really put your mind to, to, to hitting those goals. Yeah, I mean, is that the norm? Like when you are des de designing any kind of building now, you are thinking about energy efficiency or um, again the climate change. That's is that a, a requirement or just something that you know should be? Uh, Nikki, I'll let you answer that as well as the rest of the question. Yeah, I think in California, it's certainly 
it is almost the norm just because our, our requirements in our state are a lot higher than the rest of the nation when it comes to energy efficiency. Um, and so, you know, being LEED certified is almost just, it's, it's really just meeting California building code, quite honestly. So, um, you know, I think we have to do a little better than that. And, um, you know, things like solar, uh, SMUD is rolling out a really great program with solar shares where you don't even need to have it on your building, but purchasing solar so that your residents can save money on their electric bill. Those are things that I think, you know, our younger generations are asking for, they're demanding. So it's not only really the norm, but I think that it's when your residents and your community wants to see that, that's when you have to start being innovative with, you know, how you bring energy efficiency. All right. Next question at the mic. Hey, what's happening? Michael Nerby here. Um, so you're playing Sims Sacramento. Hey, can we talk about, you know, maybe some design elements from Chris, maybe some development from Nikki, kind of how you see maybe downtown, midtown, the river, and uh, maybe materials or design elements? Yes, that was one of my questions, actually. I was going to say, say you are the urban planner, uh, the top urban planner in the city or the county of Sacramento, right? Or you're playing SimCity, Sacramento. What would you What would you do? I guess if you had, you know, a, a moderate budget, maybe you couldn't go all out, but what would you do? Chris, we'll start with you. Well, um, I, I've had a long time interest in what happens with the Capitol Mall um, here in Sacramento because I think it is our front room. I think it's really important. Um, and, you know, we have that freeway that bisects downtown with, from, the, from the waterfront. And, um, you know, we have done, had lots of conversations in the past about a bridging project that could deck over I-5 and really connect the waterfront to downtown. And then, of course, then connecting that, doing something significant with the waterfront so that it becomes a destination place and becomes a more vibrant part of our, of our, of our urban fabric. Um, I think those are all things that I would tackle first and really, you know, put all of our creative talents toward making those places better and in great places for, for us. Is that in discussion, decking Interstate 5? Because we had a Q&A, &A actually, a Q&A earlier this year with Bay Mary, another real estate developer, and his wife, Catherine Bardis, who uh, is a home builder. And he was just like, that would be the first thing I would do, would deck I-5. And it just seems like hear that. So is that something that is under discussion or people are talking about it so much that they're thinking we should do it? Well, the discussion goes back quite a ways and we've had design threats and, and different um, events centered around, uh, around that. And I think there were a lot of great ideas presented. Uh, as usual, money gets in the way sometimes, right? Um, but if you, we've seen it done successfully in other cities like Seattle, you know, the freeway park and all of that. So it's possible. I, and I don't, I don't see why we can't work towards it, right? Yeah, I guess if we had an earthquake like San Francisco did with the Embarcadero, right? That's how they got theirs done. Or Well, we'll see. Nikki, what about you? Maybe that's the one benefit of an earthquake, I guess. Although we're going to have a mass exodus from the Bay Area into Sacramento if that does happen. Um, so we're going to need to resolve a lot of other issues. But um, certainly I think that creating a sense of place and a community, it there's so many things that go hand in hand. And if I was an urban planner, I would certainly... I think there's a lot of things we can do just in our grid that would incentivize development to the extent that would bring the people necessary to create the community. Um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of great ideas, but we need the people. And, 
you know, unfortunately we haven't built the housing that we need. And so that would be my main focus. Of course, I think that, um, you know, you have to create mixed use communities because you can't just bring the housing and not have the amenitization that's required to enable, you know, things like smaller units to thrive. Um, in other cities, small units thrive and density thrives because you have the living rooms outside of your building. And it's through the sense of place and through the waterfront becoming a destination and through, um, you know, the ability to walk several blocks and feel like you're a part of an amazing community, which I think Sacramento definitely has the potential to become. Um, but it's going to take a lot of thought between a lot of people in different industries and not just, you know, our planners and our developers and our own, you know, siphons, like coming up with our projects, but thinking about how they all integrate together. So what I would do is really first tackle um, the ability to even bring uh, density within our housing projects, because right now we're prohibited from doing that in a lot of areas. And um, there's a lot of places that would benefit from that density. So that would be the first place I would tackle as an urban planner. And actually a, a follow-up a follow question to that, because it seems like the city of Sacramento is really focusing on the waterfront, old Sacramento, and the rail yards, which is uh, has plans and 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 going to break ground. But uh, for those two areas, do you have any specific thoughts about what you would do or what you're really rooting uh, for to happen in those two areas, which are right next to each other, Christopher? Yeah. So the waterfront has a big, you know, there's a big chunk of that that really needs redevelopment. Um, um, there's, you know, some sort of almost blighted buildings and and things that I think are getting in the way of creating a kind of a unified space. There's, um, there's, there's pieces, you can do pieces of it, but without considering the, th uh, the thing as a whole, it's gonna be really difficult to get there. And until we can sort of overcome that redevelopment uh, hurdle that might be happening there, I think, um, I think it'll be very difficult. So, on the on the rail yards, I think there's a lot moving there, and it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Because, just like when you're designing a building, I mean, you can come up with a great plan, but if you don't do the details right, it won't. It'll, it might fall flat. So, um, I think we'll be watching very carefully to see how the details of the rail yards come together and how it how it works as a whole. And Nikki, any thoughts about those two areas, the waterfront and the rail yards, or are you involved in any of those? Not yet, but um, I do think that they're critical pieces, especially the waterfront, um, because you look at other cities and that's really where you have the thriving communities and the, the housing and that's where people want to be. And unfortunately in Sacramento, we don't have that piece. Um, so I think there has to be a balance between the historic buildings that you know are a part of our history in Sacramento, a very important part of our history, but also bringing new buildings to that area so that you can actually bring the vitality and sense of community to those places. Um, so we really do have to have a, a delicate balance between the two. Um, obviously, Sacramento's history, a lot of that is within those areas. So we have to be cognizant of that, but also know that they cannot be thriving unless we do bring newer structures and more density to those places. And that just uh, sparked my my memory. Isn't Dreyfus and Blackford working on a new building on the waterfront, the the new powerhouse science yeah, center, or maybe it's renovating a building? Right. So it was the old uh, PG&E um, power facility, and uh, 
we've been I think about 15 years working on this, a uh, really long time. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, SMUD um, uh, chimed in and, is, and got us over the, the financial hurdle to finish that project. But um, I think that's just a, a great uh, facility and it'll be a fantastic resource for the community. I mean, school children from miles around will come to that. There'll be a planetarium and interactive science exhibits and uh, it's uh, it's been a really exciting project. Uh, but so, so long to get here. But they, they broke ground, right? They're starting to work on it. Yeah, so we had to tear down over half the building to rebuild it because it was in such uh, a state of bad repair. So um, uh, so once it'll start coming back together again soon and you'll see those walls going back up and then, then the, the, the other construction will have start to happen. All right, next question at the mic, please. There has been a lot of discussion of densification tonight. The city of Minneapolis recently took a step to upzone all single-family parcels to allow three units. Broad brush every parcel in the city, no focus, for example, on transportation corridors, commercial areas, anything like that, everywhere. Would be interesting hearing from, from both of you, A, kind of generically what you think of that approach, and B, is that approach an approach maybe Sacramento should consider? Nikki. I think any type of blanketed just upzoning may not be the right approach. I think that there has to be a gradual um, understanding of you know commercial corridors. Sacramento especially already has these corridors in place, and unfortunately, I don't think that we're maximizing our potential on those corridors. But I also believe that even outside of those corridors, just the grid itself. You look at the Sacramento region; it's humongous, and you have a tiny little grid. And we really do not have the density in this grid. Um, but I think we have to be thoughtful about where we place the density. I do believe, though, that unfortunately, the way that we've zoned our grid is not sufficient to meet the needs of our, our workforce just within the grid itself. So um, you know, I, I think that we have to focus on our corridors, but we do also have to look outside of them to see how those surrounding communities can can benefit from, you know, things like duplexes, triplexes, ADUs. Um, there's a lot of parcels in Midtown and downtown that just have vacant land behind them that are not being utilized and aren't safe. And I think that the alley activation is one of the things that we can accomplish that would bring a lot of people together because I think many people are in agreement with that and it would be a very quick solution to a problem that we're facing today. Be specific about alley activation, because I've heard this term, but what, how would that play out, alley activation? Well, specifically the way that Midtown was built, um, just in our history, there's, you know, unfortunately the lots are very long and you only have one single family home on these lots. And so the back alleys are just not being utilized. It's a waste of land in an urban center, and I think that there's a lot of opportunity and potential to you know, do parcel splits and really activate those streets, those alleys that are between our blocks um, to bring the housing that we need. And um, I think that that's a very, um, you know, a, an acceptable approach to bring density and that you know, it's, it's really only activating underused parcels of land. And Chris, what's your comment? Yeah, I was going to tie in with the alley activation too, because I think it's a really f a fantastic thing that's been happening in town. Um, those those you know those alleys have you know 
not been well used and they're kind of end up being pretty seedy when you do that. But once you get, um, you, you basically a block then can have four faces or actually six faces if you consider the ends of the block. And we, we really need to take advantage of those. Um, I, I will say I, I agree that I think that uh, being selective on location uh, for density is I think really important because um, you want it, you want it to help with the socioeconomic conditions in the, in the city without causing problems at, at a certain point. So um, I think definitely selected um, locations is really important. Thank you. And I have a question actually, but I guess about exteriors versus, well, exteriors and interiors. And I think living in, in, um, in California, there's a lot of obviously uh, homeowners associations and there's certain rules and everything's a certain color. <laughs> and, um, you know, you go to some places like, say, I was in Florida recently and everything, you know, rainbow colors. But of course, you know, they're on the coast and it's, a, you know, the, the humidity, it, maybe it lends itself to a certain type of exterior uh, architecture. But I was wondering in terms of when you look at buildings, residential or, or commercial, um, is it more now like what's inside and how it's being used inside? Cause that's, that's what's very important. Exteriors, maybe not so much because it has to whatever blend in or, or maybe, uh, in terms of when you're looking at the budget, you're, you have to put more money into what's really going to be used. But when you think of exteriors of a, a new building or renovating a building, how important is an exterior compared to say, you know, uh, the 1930s Art Deco and and skyscrapers, or you know Roman temples and Gothic architecture, you know all that ornate stuff outside. Is that still, is that cost effective? Is it just not necessary anymore? What what's the role of exteriors of a building now compared to before? Nikki, well, from a cost perspective, I can definitely speak to that. I know, I'm sure that Chris is going to have a different perspective, but. Um, you know, I do believe that as developers, we have to build from the inside out in the sense that, you know, our, the majority of our costs are, you know, defined by the structure itself and maximizing um, the footprint and maximizing, um, you know, the space within that structure. Those are all really important things to pencil projects out. Um, but I wouldn't say that the exterior is not important. I just think that especially in a place like Sacramento, we have to be functional. Uh, design has to be functional and it has to serve a purpose um, because, you know, I wish that we could do the things that they did back in the 1930s. Uh, I know we certainly have many buildings that are historic and the workmanship back then was possible because you had the laborers who could do work like that. And it was, you know, today getting something like that replicated would be near impossible. We just don't have that labor force and we certainly don't have, you know, the ability to fund those types of things. But um, I think that there has to be a balance between, you know, creating and maximizing efficiency within a structure and how that translates to the exterior facade of a building. Um, I think that there's ways to make it beautiful even by just being functional um, and I think that you know the minimalist design the simplicity of our exteriors um, having people you know be able to afford housing is our most important p 
piece right now in California, but that shouldn't mean that we're going to, you know, forget about how the design translates in a hundred years from now. So I think that, you know, there's a definitely from an architectural perspective, I think Chris might have a more interesting thought on that, but I'm speaking very much so on behalf of a cost conscious developer. So I don't know that I can be more interesting. I'll try though. But, um, um, the one of the things about modernism is it sort of um, sets aside um, ornamentation as as being not really important to to the cause, right? To what you're trying to do with it, and I think as, as I said earlier, and it's speaking completely in line with what you're saying, um, the function of the building is the most important thing, and the spaces that are inside are spaces need to be spaces for people, and they need to be enjoyable, and they need to support whatever cause you're trying to do with the, with the building. So clearly, that's a very important part of it. When I look at materials, exterior materials, and, and design of exterior buildings, a lot of time I'm, I'm working on institutional buildings that that want that are designed to be around for 50, 100 years and have a, serv a serviceable life. So it's really important that the materials are durable and serviceable over time, minimal maintenance. Um, and the exterior is more about common, uh, you know, um, uh, composition of elements or creation of, of, of textures um, to, to create interests in the facade and make them attractive to, to people. Because not everybody will actually, you know, a lot of buildings, very few people get to go in them. So, but they still need to work within the community that they're in and they still need to be a great community resource. So it's clearly important, but the inside is more important. But it seems that there's examples of where you can have that modernist look that's, that's that catches the eye, obviously, the SMUD headquarters, right? Uh, CalPERS, I don't know if Dreyfus, I think you renovated the main headquarters. I mean, that's a very impressive looking building. So there are examples of how you can do function and, and facade. Well, uh, CalPERS Lincoln Plaza North is the building actually that was designed um, and constructed right before I came to Sacramento. So the firm did design it. Um, we've been doing continuous work on that facility since then. So I've done lots of projects inside the building, um, not really renovation, but just keeping it current for everyone. But the thing about that building, and if you really look at it, it's there is no real facade on the building. It is columns and beams and cantilevered floor slabs and, and plants and glass. I mean, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's just this living giant chia pet of a building. And it just makes it fantastic. And that's ultimately extremely uh, uh, sustainable. You never have to do anything really to, except trim the plants back once in a while. Yeah, I think that's what I see is the plants in the glass. And I'm going to remember living chia pet whenever I drive by there on S Street. All right, we have two more questions at the mic. Hi, I'm Casey Wong. As a young emerging professional, what advice can you offer to me and other young listeners to achieve the positions that you hold today? So yes, aspiring real estate developers and aspiring architects slash design directors. How do you get to these positions today? Chris, why don't we start with you? Um, I would say just be true to yourself. I mean, it's um, have fun with everything you do. Um, I think one of the reasons why I was really compelled to come out and talk, um, uh, share in this tonight with, um, when Vanessa approached me was, was that she had a, a mention about um, engagement. How can people not only hear about what's happening, but how do you get engaged? How do you get involved? Um, what can you do to work together with all of us 
and you know the spirit of the AIA and other organizations around town, there are plenty of opportunities to come out and, and I would love to work with you on doing any kind of project that might be interesting to you. And I think that's the I hope key. That's a pr- I hope that's a promise. I'm that's a promise, AIA absolutely too, so. a promise. Okay, we'll network after this, so. <laughs> Nikki? Well, I would say that this industry certainly is you know, filled with challenges and obstacles, but I think that if you have the passion for it, really that is the ultimate thing that's going to make you succeed in this field. Um, if you persist and continue and be bold with your ideas and never give up when people tell you you can't do it um, or that it's never been done before, I've been doing this for 40 years and I, you know, you can't do that. I say don't listen to those things and continue to be bold and utilize your passion to the greatest extent in this industry because there are so many challenges and people give up, you know, when they come across these obstacles, but we really need that fresh perspective and California needs you. So please get involved. Thank you so much, Eugene. And don't worry, I won't give up. Thank you for the great question. I actually, before we get to our last question of the mic, I was wondering, is there a lot of interaction between architects and developers? I mean, obviously you two uh, just met today, but um, I think there was, again, there was a, the Sacktown Magazine story, which is so good about the Smut headquarters, was talking about how, you know, Dreyfus and Blackford and Wayne Tebode and other people were talking about modernism and they were the local design intelligency and they sat around and talked about uh, design and architecture and how to get more people in Sacramento uh, involved and inspired. And uh, I'm wondering, is that still happen today? Is there a lot of interaction between the various people involved uh, in designing and building uh, a building? Or are there still silos that maybe need to be crossed over? I think we should have, definitely should have more collaboration, that's for sure. But I think that definitely in, this, in the circles that I am, I'm in, um, you know, we can only do what we do because of the work of our architects. And so we really rely on their expertise and their innovation and their ideas and their vision. And so, um, you know, I think that collaboration is so critical um, and the talent really is shown through what you were talking about, which is you know creating functional design. And I think that's where we merge in our interests and our ideas align is when we're trying to accomplish a thing, and we need our architects to understand that functionality and that you know beauty is really in the simplicity of its design um, and how we can create that purpose within our design. So. Yeah, I, I, I feel like there's a lot of discussions, but there has to be a lot more if we want to think outside of the box and do things that have never been done before. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've been doing this for a while, and I would say that things have changed a lot, particularly in the past few years. Um, it's become much, much more collaborative than it used to be. Um, design build is, um, can be hair-raising at times, but the thing I've really loved about it is, is that we're connecting with the builders on a much deeper level. And then you start to build this greater team, which could be developers and, and clients and builders, and, and we're all working together. We all have the same goal and we're, we're starting to cross over. So now we've got architects working in developer's office and, and, and then as architects we've got developers working with us and so it, it's becoming one giant really collaborative team and I think it's been fantastic. It's, 
it's we're in a renaissance period i think we're really entering into something great yes i just learned about the term design build where i guess when you bid on a project it is the architect coming together with the builder and going together to the client rather than just the client picking uh an architect and then building a collecting, um, collecting, picking a builder who may not have collaborated before. It seems like it's less expensive and more collaborative. And that seems to be a growing trend, this design-build partnership. Yeah, and it, and it really relates. And it's not even necessarily that it could be less expensive, but um, it, re it results in a better project. And ideally, the client is right in there with the team. You really just have one entity that's doing everything, but everyone has a part within that, and they're all working together. Next question at the mic. Uh, Bob Chase, local architect. <clears throat> um, we've, you've both addressed, I think, the significance of climate change, uh, greenhouse gas reduction, sustainability as we go forward in our buildings, and I think we've done a good job of addressing that and are continuing to. One of the greatest contributors, though, to greenhouse gas, as we all know, is the automobile. Um, Nikki, you had a, a very innovative uh, way of dealing with parking in your building. Also, I think in reducing the number of cars required. We've got some antiquated parking requirements that require cars. Uh, how do you both, each of you, see us addressing the automobile and its effect on the future of buildings? And yeah, Nikki, tell us about the innovative uh, way you have of handling parking. So firstly, well, at 19J specifically, I know we just did a tour. Uh, I think it was yesterday, was it? Yeah. Saturday, uh, Sunday, yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, we, for 175 units, we only built 39 parking spaces, which is far lower than what most people build. Um, we also, you know, we took eight parking spaces turned it into 23 by utilizing a mechanical lift system, a three-level puzzle lift within one story of a parking garage. And um, so it's basically like, you know, you drive your car in, it moves around for you and you retrieve your car, but it enables you to bring that density um, within a very tight footprint. Um, our perspective when we were designing the building was that we were looking at, it was really a sacrifice between housing versus cars because our units are, you know, let's say 350 square feet and a parking space takes approximately that much to, to build with the ramps and the clearances and all of that. So we were making the decision of whether we build parking or whether we build housing. And for us, it, for me, it was a very easy decision because I knew that you know we're in a time where we have technologies that enable us to not have to rely on car ownership. And um, especially with the younger generation, um, when it comes to housing affordability, it's not just about your rent. It's about um, everything that, you know, standard of living and how you, you know, spend your money. And cars cost approximately $9,000 a year. So if you live in a location that allows you to not own a car, where you can walk to work and use Uber and Lyft and use car sharing when you need to use a car, um, that's really a sustainable way forward. So um, for me, it was about designing a building that would enable people to live that lifestyle. And I felt that, you know, if you build the parking, cars will come. If you make it easy, they will bring their cars. Um, but we wanted to build a building for people who believed in that lifestyle and who wanted to be a part of that urban environment in the true sense of urban living. Chris. Yeah, and I, I don't know that I have much to add to that, but I think that the walkability thing is is huge. Um, you know, giving people the option of, of doing that. I'm, you know, 
um, you moved into the Woodlake neighborhood recently, Bob, and we've um, we've worked sort of in a food desert and everything there for, for a long time. And um, but we're starting to see where now I can actually walk and go have a, a microbrew down the street. And I could never do that before. And um, even though there's light rail right next to my house, um, it's really difficult if, if, if you've got to try to navigate to some other part of town for that that kind of thing. So I think just creating the um, you know neighborhoods that have things within their neighbor, within the neighborhood, within walking distance, amenities and, and attractions so that everyone can have that kind of experience, um, I think would help a lot. Thank you. And, and just a side question to that really quickly. Um, I'm wondering how, well, maybe it's not so much with infill development, but maybe with future um, development in California, how much of uh, interaction is there between, or collaboration and interaction, between architects, developers, and the transportation planner. You know, I, I'm thinking about uh, high-speed rail. You know, the the plans for it, BART, right? And uh, building uh, housing along the the current and future um, railways that are being planned. Is there, in your experience, enough discussion and collaboration between the people who are doing the building and the people who are laying the the concrete or the the rails or you know future transportation or should there be more collaboration between those two groups? Chris, um, yeah, I mean it's um, oftentimes there's been a good bit of separation between uh, traffic planners and architects and others, and uh, I think we do all need to talk and work together and come up with solutions for that. And I I think the um, Nikki's generation and the, and, the, and the young ones coming up, um, I, I think they have such a collaborative spirit, you know, that I think that we'll start to see a lot more of that, and I think that's really important. Nikki. Yeah, I, I definitely, I mean, I, I believe that we have a long way to go when it comes to how we can utilize our transit system much better because we don't have the zoning in place around those transit systems that enable us to really have that ridership that's going to use those systems. And the success of transit comes when people have the need and the ability to use those systems, but unfortunately, you know, in places like Sacramento, we don't have that ridership. And it really only comes from, you know, making sure that you're building the right density around those systems. I, I know with BART, for example, that's a very clear example of how, unfortunately, there has not been enough collaboration between urban planners, developers, and those who create the transit. Um, because we have, like, you know, single-family homes around our BART systems. And... I think that's a shame. I know, you know, Senator Weiner has been focused on um, upzoning around those areas, and I think it's critical because otherwise, you you're not going to see the reduction in GHG emissions unless you do things like that. Shameless plug: We did do a Q and A, Groundbreakers Q and A, with Senator Scott Weiner from San Francisco, and talked about this and how he's fighting for it uh, in the legislature. And sometimes they let him get things passed, and sometimes they don't. So yes, that seems to be a an, uh, a topic that will always be a discussion. So we will have one last question at the mic and then I'll get to ask my last quick question. Hi, my name is Jordan and I wanted to say first congratulations on 19th and J. I'm a huge fan. It's really nice to see micro housing come to Sacramento. 
And my question is, how would you guys like to see areas such as Natoma, specifically around the sleep, cha sleep train arena, transform suburbs into more walkable family neighborhoods? I think that's really the issue actually here in Sacramento region, how we take our suburbs and create more walkable neighborhoods. And I know that SACOG has spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. I think it's critical that we create mixed use communities out in the suburbs. Um, I think that all comes down to planning and how we treat some of these areas that have for so long been considered just the suburban track home, you know, land development um, opportunities. But places like the Sleep Train Arena are opportunities where we can think a little differently and not just create these, you know, masses of um, track home communities that don't really have that sense of place and enable the walkability. Um, there's a lot of commercial corridors within these suburbs that I feel are underutilized and could definitely benefit from a, a fresh perspective on you know, how we bring the retail component, the office component, create you know, more jobs in these areas so that people don't have to you know, commute and live far away from where they work. Um, so I think it's really a, a balance between all of those things. Well, and uh, I, I had a kind of a question about that. Like, what would you do with uh, sleep train? I did have one, actually. Like, what would you do with shopping malls? Because those seem to be structures that are just dying, and how do you revise them? I guess there's, there's a... So I, I want to add my question into theirs about, you know, sleep train, shopping malls, those are in the suburbs. So if you had your, if you had your hands on a shopping mall and or sleep train, what you would do with it? So um, how about... Chris, well, you answer that, and then Nikki, if you have specific plans that we'd love to share about sleep train slash shopping mall. Okay. Um, but first, I want to say that part of your question, too, was every time I drive out to Roseville or Folsom or somewhere like that, and I'm in traffic, and I'm stuck in traffic, and there's all these cars going in my direction, and then I look, and there's all these cars going in the other direction. I'm going, why are we swapping spaces? Why were we happy with where we were to begin with? Uh, but So I think that what Nikki was saying is really important is that the suburbs are there. They're not going away. But what can we do to make them better places and, and make, make it great communities for them and maybe make it more walkable for them or you know, easy to get around? So, so I, I always like thinking of using buildings. Um, you know, there's a good bit of sustainability of how do you take a building that have, was built for a certain purpose and what can you do with it that will make it better than it was? And one of the things I think it would be really cool to take a shopping center that was defunct or whatever and turn it into a mixed-use housing development. I mean, you can imagine just the stuff you could do with that, right? There's uh, community uh, spaces and, and you know, you come up with the creative ways of cutting holes in it and, and bringing the outside into it. I think it would, could be a really fantastic thing. Um, Sleep train is a diff would be a more difficult one. I'm not. I I would have to really study that one to figure out how you might turn that into something else. But um, but certainly you've got a structure that's built there. Why not use it somehow? Well, yeah, Nikki, I think, what, what would you do, Nikki? Well, there's so sleep train specifically. I think that um, it's really the the parking around sleep train that I see as the opportunity, not so much the arena itself. So, um, you know, that's, that's where I see the opportunity of bringing the right type of development into a space that, you know, if we don't do something with, it's just going to sit there. So I think there's a lot of opportunities there to bring more mixed-use community, um, more density in an area that would have otherwise probably stayed vacant. Um, and then, you know, I know that there's just 
shopping centers. There's ideas in other cities in Minneapolis where they turned a shopping center into housing, uh, micro units specifically. So um, there has been some discussions around Sunrise Mall as well and just what you know to do with a, a place that used to be thriving that is no longer um, you know, util utilized to its best potential. And um, there's been some ideas of housing floating around as well. So uh, we'll see how that turns out. But there are some great opportunities in the Sacramento region, especially, especially in the suburbs. I know we talk a lot about the urban grid, but I do believe in order to create a successful region, we have to look at all of our suburbs and the vitality of those, co those corridors within those suburbs to ensure that, you know, we're bringing that same philosophy of walkability and density and urban living to those areas because it's thriving. And when you go to the suburbs, you see that. So there's a lot of potential out there. Thank you both. And thank you for the great questions, audience, uh, as always. So I, I'll, I'll wrap it up with one last quick question. Um, God, I have so many, but let's see. Um, I'm gonna end with this one because Nikki, I saw a recently a Sacramento Business Journal story with your comments about what you would like to do, uh, you know, tackling a, a big, uh, a big issue in, in California. We have so many, right? Building in places where there's, you know, we're, we're living in a wildfire high risk zone, most of um, California. We have affordable housing issues. We have uh, the homelessness crisis. There's so many things that, um, that the state has to tackle. And I'm assuming, uh, architects and real estate developers are looking at how can I help and what can we do to tackle it. So Nikki, I, I wanted to, I saw that, that story just briefly and I thought that was a great suggestion and I'm not sure uh, where you're going with that, but I thought I would end with that in terms of you know a, a, a pressing issue that California is dealing with. What are you working on uh, with your your firm or organization or what would you like to do what you think you could do in your role to help tackle that issue and it doesn't have to be the business journal story but it might be yeah I mean I think that in my career I've I've certainly seen real estate development as a conduit um, to make social impact and our, our industry and our field has so much capability to handle the issues that we're facing um, that inequality that we're seeing um, and it's really through the design of what we build what we choose to build how we choose to push the traditional boundaries of what's created to think out of the box and bring those ideas to solving our, our challenges and the greatest challenge of our time right now is housing and homelessness those are the, the two biggest priorities of our state in solving and I think that it would be a shame if our industry didn't step up and participate because we have the knowledge and we have to work with our elected officials and the public public realm to bring those sol solutions uh, to fruition. So, um, you know, I think that just the, you know, the concept of micro units was really designed um, for the workforce population in at a place like 19J. But the same concept can apply to when we're looking at how we solve the issues of homelessness. Um, I know that you know our mayor has been very proactive about finding solutions when it comes to efficiency units and um, you know different methods to make that happen. And so I think being in Sacramento, we have this opportunity to do that. Um, we are at the center of California, and we have a problem that, in my opinion, is is very manageable. 
we don't have you know the 27,000 homeless people that San Francisco has. We don't have the 44,000 homeless people that Los Angeles faces. In Sacramento, we have a very manageable population, and we have our elected officials right here in our capital. So, um, you know what we're working on with uh, and Burke is in this room from HomeAid. Um, we're working with Women's Empowerment and HomeAid to. You know, get the business community together to take exactly what we do in our daily lives and bring it to the forefront when it comes to solving homelessness. So, we're you know creating a community of smaller units, um, some co-living um, facilities to house our homeless women um, that have gone through that program, and hopefully, it's going to be an idea that's replicated. But we really want to show that we can build cost-efficient housing. And it doesn't have to be $600,000 a unit to create affordable housing. So th this is in the works? Is this a discussion or? So it's in the works. I know Burke had the designs with him uh, earlier as I walked in. So we were looking over that and um, we're hopefully going to be doing that within the next few months. But we've already started and um, it's going to be a phased project. So we're taking the very first question you asked me, which was what, what is the building that inspires me the most? This is uh, part of that whole campus over there. Exciting. And Chris, last word. Uh, with you or Dreyfus and Blackford, something, that, a pressing challenge that uh, you're working on, would like to work on, that you think that you could address in your role as architect and design director? Right, so um, you know, as architects, we have kind of a unique um, role, I think, in society. Um, a lot of active, uh, a lot of architects are really activists in things like homelessness and and other issues that we have socially. Um, I've always approached myself as um, someone who can um, enable things, really good things, to happen, and in a way that 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 makes them potentially more thoughtful or creative. In, in the approach to the, to the to the solution, so whether it's a homeless shelter or a, 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 a tiny house or a giant institutional building, design is really at the core of everything. Everything, because design is about understanding the human condition and how it interacts with our built environment. So for me, the thing that's always been a mantra for myself is to get people talking about those kinds of issues, uh, thinking about design and thinking about um, ways to creatively solve problems and, and really to help the kind of efforts that you're, that you're doing um, and to help everyone really with, with all of that. So um, it's, it's a very broad, I think, approach to that, but it's fundamental to getting success in anything that we do as a community and as a society. Well, congratulations to you both for the projects that you have uh, worked on, you have built, and the future projects going forward. It's going to be very interesting to see how you change our skyline. But uh, thank you very much for coming to talk with us and give us your vision and features, and, uh, and we'll, we'll uh, stay tuned to what you do. And thank you, audience, for being here. It's been a great discussion, and uh, we'll wrap it up now and say good night. Thank you.
You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Groundbreakers Q&A conversation was held on October 7th at Antiquity Midtown in Sacramento. Thanks go to our panelists, Chris Barkley and Nikki Mohana, and to our hosts, Sharon Wilson and Marcy Hose of Antiquity Midtown. Also to the American Institute of Architects for promoting this event as part of its Experience Architecture Week in Sacramento. For helping to make this event run smoothly, thanks to our caterer, Jennifer Fregata, our bartender, Rodrigo Ramirez, and to California Groundbreakers board members, Donald Brown and Nicole Grant-Krieg. Thanks also to volunteer Nate Graham and to Caleb Clark of Kickstart Audio for making us sound good for this podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.